Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. A word who became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see and know his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you that the light has come into the darkness. And Father, we understand and we recognize that in our sin, we rejected the light. And we loved the darkness more than the light, but you in your love and your grace and your mercy in eternity past, you saw us and you called us by name. You've adopted us as your own. In your love and in your mercy, you saw us when we were dead in our sins. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who was born so that men may no more may die. Father, we get to rejoice and to rest in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And Father, we thank you for this season of reflection on the miracle of the coming of your son. And so, Father, we celebrate that he has come to us. Lord, we anticipate the truth that he is coming again. So, Lord, today, will you prepare our hearts? Will you prepare our minds? Will you bring us under the authority of your word? Would you conform us by your word to the image of your son, Jesus Christ? Make us more like him. We ask all these things in his name. And everyone said, amen. 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 You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 together today. Uh, If you're here with us today for the first time, I want to welcome you. And what we've been doing as a church family this fall is uh, walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. We'll be here uh, today, verses 1 through 9, and then Lord willing be wrapping up this short letter uh, next week. We uh, have now officially a little bit, it's a little weird this year because the first Sunday was in November, but we have officially uh, entered the season of Advent. This historically uh, marks a season of preparation of our hearts as we celebrate the birth of Christ. And uh, if you're not familiar, the term Advent, it simply comes uh, from a Latin word that means coming. It's a season where we don't just celebrate with joy the reality that Christ has come to us. We anticipate with hope uh, the reality that Jesus is coming to us once again. And I just had this conversation with a few brothers at my son's birthday party yesterday, how it seems as if the events of 2020 have created this heightened sense and this deeper longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. We've been faced every single day, it feels like this year, with the realities of the brokenness of this world And it's created a heightened desire among the people of God this year uh, for the day when Jesus Christ is going to come uh, and do as Tolkien wrote to make everything sad come untrue. We long for these things and we long for this day. And until the day of the return of Christ, the calling of the church is to be a light in the midst of the darkness. But because of everything that's been happening in our world this year, uh, that light this year in many ways has seemed to grow a little bit dim. It was back in August Dave Kinneman of the Barna Research Group predicted that as many as one in five churches, congregations that had to close their doors this year due to COVID will never reopen them again. On top of the 20% who have closed the doors maybe to never reopen, there are thousands of other congregations who are struggling in the midst of this season due to the restrictions that we faced. And in Matthew 16, Jesus promised to build his church. He promised that in building his church, the gates of hell would never overcome it. So how do we reconcile the promise of Jesus in Matthew 16 to build his church with the reality of struggling congregations? 
And how can a church in the midst of great difficulty, the way our church family, the way uh, thousands of other church families have faced immense difficulty this year, how can we be a congregation that does not simply survive but thrive in the midst of these challenges? So over the last few months, what we have done is we've looked at a picture of invincible joy. Joy that thrives, joy that persists, joy that continues regardless of the circumstances. And today we're going to take that one step a little bit further and we're going to look at a picture of the invincible church. People who have invincible joy, have experienced and have known the invincible joy of Jesus Christ can band together, form together, congregate together to be an invincible congregation, to be an invincible church in, face of, in the face of the challenges of this world because this is what we get to rest in today is that no matter how bleak things might temporarily seem, Jesus Christ has promised to build his church. And we can be an invincible church because we're being built by an invincible Christ. The reality this year is that many congregational buildings may shut their doors, but we get to rest in the promise that Jesus will never stop building his church. That's good news, amen. We get to see today the picture of the invincible church. Let's read again from the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Apostle Paul writes here, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Everybody say, stand firm. Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. So listen to Paul's affection for this congregation in verse 1. He calls them my brothers whom I love and long for. So they were family together. They were brothers and sisters in the Lord. These are people for whom uh, the Apostle Paul held very high regard. And this word long that he uses in verse 1, epipathetos, it's not a common word. This is actually the only time we see this word used in the entire New Testament. And it indicates uh, an intense, strong desire marked by intense affection. Paul loved these people. He had a a great desire for these people. He calls them my joy and my crown. Josiah alluded to this last week, but uh, during first century athletic competitions, crowns were given uh, to those who won athletic competitions. So uh, again, this was not something that was just handed out in mass. You know, if you think uh, people are spoiled today in a culture where everybody gets a trophy, imagine a culture where everybody gets a crown. Okay, Uh, You did not just get this because you participated. A crown was an indication that you had not only participated, but you had emerged victorious. And so Paul's saying to Philippi, you are my crown. You are my evidence that I have faithfully run the race. You are the evidence that I'm going to emerge in victory in Jesus Christ. And he calls them my beloved. This is a term of even deeper affection than brothers. And the fact that Paul calls them mine It reflects how proud he was of their deep, authentic relationship with one another. So for this church that Paul loves so deeply and so dearly, he offers several exhortations. So today we're going to look at seven traits. We're going to move very quickly. Seven traits of an invincible church. Seven traits of an invincible church. A church that persists, a church that continues, a church that doesn't just survive, but thrives regardless of the circumstance. And the first of those seven traits is resolve. We will stand firm in the Lord. We're going to look at one trait, and with each one of these traits is going to come an application. The trait is resolve, and our calling is to stand firm in the Lord. Now, uh, we need to pause here for just a moment and set this in context, because the beginning of verse 1, Paul starts with the word, therefore, and uh, Bible students, when we open up our Bibles and we see the word, therefore, what's the question that we ask? 
What's it there for? Okay, there's a reason that word's there. This is a continuation of things that Paul has already spoken up to this point. So it's a summary statement, and he's telling them to stand firm in light of what it is he just communicated to them in chapter 3, which had a strong emphasis on right teaching and sound doctrine. Beginning of chapter 3, he'd warned them of the Judaizers. These were those who were guilty of adding to the message of the gospel. Then as Josiah showed us last week, end of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he warns of self-indulgent false teachers who had positioned themselves as leaders in the church. Earlier in chapter 1, he had warned of those who were preaching not a false message, but were preaching the message of the gospel out of false motives for their own personal gain. And so here's a warning for all of these, for those who would add to the gospel, for those who would take away from the gospel, or from those who would preach the gospel from false motives. In light of all of this, Paul gives this exhortation, stand firm in the Lord. Don't add to the message, don't take away from the message, don't preach the message from a false motive. Stand firm in the Lord. What makes the church invincible is not so much the act of our standing as much as it is the object in which we stand. It's the fact that we are standing firm, where? In the Lord. This is our confidence in the midst of the challenges that we face. And the way we remain on guard against those with corrupt messages is by standing firm in his word. This, this warning just remains majorly important for us to, because the church today just continues to be terribly deceived. Much of this is due largely to the fact that we've not been standing in the word. But we can point back now to about three decades of, of shallow teaching of God's word, of a, of a low emphasis on, on individual daily devotion, on a low priority of the word of God, even in the pulpit on Sunday morning. There's a, a terribly apathetic attitude toward truth in our culture today. We've been plagued by shallow teaching that uh, only serves to meet the felt need of the day and never scratches the surface of what's revealed in God's word. And church, listen, when the people of God will not stand firm in the word of God, we will fall prey to every scheme of the devil. And we see it on display in our culture today. It was a, a couple months ago, uh, Ligonier Ministries, they uh, conducted, this is a biannual, uh, they call it the State of Theology Survey, where they uh, just survey uh, a number of, of uh, Americans and uh, professing evangelical Christians as well in, in the West. And so uh, these were several troubling findings that they had from their results. And, and again, these are uh, uh, just, uh, there's a lot more to this. I would encourage you to look this out online. But these are some very concerning things that have been revealed uh, this year about professing followers of Jesus Christ in our culture that reveal our low emphasis on the Word of God. We have 22% of professing Christians, professing followers of Christ uh, in our culture today who believe that gender identity is a matter of personal choice. Now, what's encouraging is that's actually down from 32% four years ago. Is this is starting to be addressed a little bit more, and we're starting to see the inconsistencies of this even within the culture. We have 42% of professing followers of Jesus who agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 46% who agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 30% who indicated professing followers of Jesus that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he was not God. And you ask, why is this true? Because, listen, I don't mean to be dismissive. I don't mean to be condescending. Church, these are some of the most basic, most easily, plainly understood concepts that we find in Scripture. These are actually some of the less complicated things from Scripture. Like the most easily revealed things to us, and this is the one statistic that I think is telling above all why it is we're in this place. 48% agree that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And when you erode confidence in the word of God, everything else is up for grabs. 
Everything else starts to fall apart the moment we undermine the authority of God's word. And listen, I see these things firsthand as a pastor in conversations and in counseling situations. You, you see it through what professing Christians fall online. So both statistically and anecdotally, it is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer that we desperately need to recover serious devotion to the word of God. And church, we need to do it quickly. If we will not stand in the Lord and stand firm in his word, we will fall prey to every scheme of the devil. Ephesians 6, Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God. As we do what? As we stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And we're given exactly one offensive weapon with the armor of God. And what is it? It's his word. If we're going to stand firm in the Lord, we have to stand firm in his word. And the invincible church stands firm in the Lord as we hold fast to his word. Uh, verses 2 and 3, Paul's going to, go to say here, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the first trait uh, that we looked at just a moment ago is resolve. The second trait is reconciliation. We must seek unity within the body of Christ. And we've uh, hinted at this for several weeks, but for as much as Paul loved this congregation, uh, even the church in Philippi, uh, as much as Paul loved them, they're uh, not unlike every other congregation that's ever existed. They have some problems. And the main problem that persisted within this congregation was that there was division within the body. And so as much as Paul loved these people, uh, they were not without their imperfections and they were not above his rebuke. And so uh, here's the situation based on what we find in these couple of verses. There's two women, uh, Syntyche and Euodia. They've had some sort of falling out. Uh, we don't know exactly what the falling out was. We're not given explicit details, uh, but there's uh, been some sort of falling out that's put them at odds with one another. Could have been uh, disagreement on how to do something within the church. It could have been a power struggle over uh, who was going to be in charge of something. It could have been a more serious sin issue like gossip or slander or character assassination. Regardless of what it is, it's causing division within the body. People are starting to take sides, and it's, uh, it's serious enough that Paul has caught wind of it from jail. Like several, that's, that's some kind of drama. Like Paul is several hundred miles away and he has still gotten word about what's happened. And so I want you to just picture this with me here for just a moment because this is how things operated in the first century church. Uh, so Paul would write these letters and then these letters would be distributed to the congregations and then you'd have a pastor, a leader, an elder, a deacon. Someone would stand in front of the congregation and read the content of the letter out loud. The whole letter. And so you can kind of picture, the, the, set, set the picture here for just a moment. You've got Yodi on this side, and you've got Syntyche on this side. And they get called out forever in the Bible. That's like the lesson about drama. Don't cause it. You will be forever remembered as the person in the, the unchanging eternal word of God. Their names are etched because of the division that was happening within the body. And Paul says, I entreat them. I beg them. I urge them. I implore them. Agree in the Lord. He even uh, asked for the assistance of a true companion. This could have been uh, an elder, a deacon, another leader in the church to step in and help them. He says, help these women, listen, who have labored side by side with me and Clement, so he's a leader in the church of Philippi, and other workers whose names are in the book of life, help them agree in the Lord. And why is this? Because what binds us together is not that we're going to see eye to eye on every little thing. What binds us together is not that we see eye to eye on every secondary and third tier theological issue. 
Not that we see eye to eye perfectly on uh, the results of the election. Not that we see eye to eye perfectly on what to do with masks and coronavirus restrictions. What binds us together, church, is that we labor together side by side for the work of the gospel and our names are written side by side in the book of life. This is what holds us together. This is what binds us together. And typically what gets a church off course and focused on these secondary matters is that we're not laboring side by side in the gospel. We're not doing, as Nate talked about earlier, keeping the main thing, the main thing, doubling down on the message of hope that's been given to us. If the enemy cannot attack us externally with false teaching, he'll attack us internally with division over secondary matters. And that's what was taking place here in Philippi. Paul goes on in the book of Romans, Romans 12, 18. This is his instruction to them. He says, if possible, If possible, so so there's going to be moments that we need to recognize right away that it may not happen exactly the way we hope it will happen. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. I want you to say this with me, so far as it depends on me. Say that with me. So far as it depends on me. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I just wonder, is there anyone here today within the body of Christ, maybe within even this own congregation, with whom you need to seek reconciliation? Someone that you need to be pursuing. Listen, we have to understand, you are not responsible for the actions of others. You're not responsible for uh, how others are going to respond or how they're going to react. Paul's instruction here is clear, as much as it depends on you. So our calling here is to your part. Apologize, pursue reconciliation, seek to make peace, kill hostility and cynicism with kindness and overcome evil with good. And as for the rest of us, we're called to be true companions We're called to be those who will come and help others sit down together to agree. So maybe step in and offer to be a mediator. See two people at odds and be the person who works to bring them together. And if necessary, we see this elsewhere from the words of Paul, maybe we even need to extend the word of gentle rebuke. To call one another back into faithful, loving community with each other out of worship for a holy God. Because listen, Paul's also clear in Titus 3, verses 9 through 11. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now look at this in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice... Have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is biblical instruction to us. And that sounds harsh, but listen, the mission that we've been given, it, it is too important for us to be consistently derailed by secondary debate. It is too important for us to be holding petty grudges against one another and and just having personal drama that we can't just sit down and talk through together as family and brothers and sisters of the Lord. One of the greatest marks of Christian maturity is that we know how to disagree well in a way that holds others in dignity and glorifies God. Perfect church, it's not that we're never going to have disagreement, it's that we know how to sit down out of loving disagreement with one another and seek the best for each other. So the invincible church not only stands firm in the Lord, it seeks to agree in the Lord as co-laborers of the gospel, whose names are written in the book of life. Paul goes on, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Everybody say always. Again, I will say 
rejoice. Third trait of an invincible church, rejoicing. We praise the Lord at all times. So notice a little bit of a pattern here with Paul's words. We stand firm in the Lord. We agree in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord. Our invincibility is not found in what we do. Our invincibility is found in the one whom we worship. Our invincibility is found in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. It will probably shock you, but again, if you do an intensive deep dive in the Greek and the study of this word always, you will find that it actually means always. Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the good and the bad. When things are going well, when things are not going well. When you are in prison like Paul and when you are free. Rejoice in the Lord always. And listen, it's interesting to me that this command to rejoice in the Lord immediately follows the instruction to agree in the Lord. So what does that tell us together? It tells us that worship is one of the most powerful remedies we have against the anger and hatred we harbor in our hearts against brothers and sisters in Christ. Church, it absolutely embarrasses me to tell you this this morning, but I cannot tell you how many Sunday mornings I have sat in this seat right over here, five minutes before I'm going to get up and I'm going to open this word and share with us something from the Lord for that particular day. And I have, in that moment, I have had bitterness in my heart against a brother or sister. I've had anger in my heart against a brother or sister. And how many times, week in and week out, we start to sing the gospel. And I'm reminded of God's love for me and his grace for me and his mercy shown to me in spite of all my sin, in spite of my rebellion, in spite of of how I've broken the relationship time and time again and have tried to run from him. And then in that moment, I'm reminded, how can I hold bitterness? How can I hold hatred? How can I hold anger in my heart against a brother or sister in the Lord when this is the mercy and the grace that's been shown me in Jesus? We we will agree in the Lord if we will be a people who rejoice in the Lord. When we are forced to get our righteousness vertically from a holy God and not horizontally from imperfect sinners, we will be much more loving, gracious, and forgiving people. When we reflect on what God has given us in Jesus, when we look at the cross, it forces us to ask, how could God love me in this way? And then the practical living out of this is how can I hold anger against others? We'll agree in the Lord when we rejoice in the Lord. Again, it's always worth the reminder, I think, that Paul is writing these words from a prison cell. If anybody has any sort of authority to tell people to rejoice in the Lord always, it's Paul. He is in prison, not because of any wrong he's done. He's in prison because he was faithful to Jesus. That's what landed him. It doesn't cause him to curse the Lord, to reject the Lord. Why has God abandoned me? Why has he forgotten me? And Paul, we know elsewhere from Scripture, he struggled. There was some depression. There was some anxiety. There was, there was internal struggle. But ultimately, he chose to rejoice. So he's writing these things like we need the reminder. Paul is not writing this of his own initiative. Every syllable of Scripture is God-breathed. Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means this exhortation, rejoice in the Lord always. This is not the optional suggestion of a man in chains. This is the inspired command of Almighty God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And listen, we need to understand this morning, God commands us to rejoice in him not because he needs our worship, not because he's hurting for our worship, not because he can't function for our worship. God commands us to praise because he knows that in giving him praise is where we're going to find our greatest joy. Praise is the remedy for our pain. Praise is the remedy for our suffering. And this is what ultimately makes God look beautiful and glorious. Few things give the gospel greater credibility than when we give him praise in spite of what it is we're walking through. It's easy to come in on Sunday morning when you got the full night of sleep and and things are going well and there's money in the bank account. 
but it's when your marriage is on the rocks and your kids are walking away from the Lord and there's no food in the barn, still I will praise you. Still I will lift my hands and I will give you praise. Fewer things give greater credibility to the message of the gospel than when we choose to rejoice in the Lord. So that's why Paul tells us once, he doesn't just tell us once, he tells us twice, rejoice in the Lord always. And then just in case we didn't hear him the first time, and again, I will say, rejoice always. When you're feeling it and when you're not feeling it, when things are going well and things are not going well. When we can praise him in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the loss. When we can raise our hands and sing, it is well with my soul when things are most definitely not well in our lives. This is ultimately what makes Jesus look beautiful and glorious. The psalmist writes, Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The invincible church rejoices always. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So trait number four is reasonableness. We will desire what's best for all. Now, uh, this term reasonableness, it can also translate gentle spirit. So John MacArthur's noted uh, that this word has a sweetness and a richness that's not really fully expressed in any one single English word. To really fully express uh, the meaning of this word, you would have to use this many words. You, You would have to say sweet reasonableness, generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity toward the faults of others, mercy toward the failures of others, leniency, big heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are attempts to capture its rich meeting. That's why we just get reasonableness in our Bibles. But it includes all of this. Maybe the best English attempt might be the word graciousness. But again, it's just hard to capture the full sense of the word in one English term. And in the first century context where this was written, it was a lot like our culture today. People were very self-indulgent, extremely self-centered. And as we're going to see in just a moment, the effects back in the first century are in many ways the same as the effects that we see today, which is a result of worry and anxiety. This is one of the inevitable results of a me-centered culture. And in this sentence, he shows us that our reasonableness, our gentle spirit toward one another, our interactions toward one another, our graciousness with one another, this has evangelistic implications. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So both inside and outside of the body of Christ, we should seek to treat all people with honor and with dignity and respect to keep our emotions in check, to be as the Lord has been to us, quick to extend grace and mercy, to not assume the worst of others, to assume the best in others. It's the opposite of our cancel culture today, which by the way has now made its way into the church We we saw this uh, just firsthand during the election season. If you didn't vote exactly the way I do, if you don't see things exactly the way I do, every waking nuance, we can't be friends anymore. I'm going to cut you out of my life. I'm going to leave the church. I'm never going to talk to you again. This is not Christian maturity. This is the immaturity of sin. It's the opposite of the gospel and the antithesis of who we're called to be as followers of Christ. Let your reasonableness, let your gentle spirit, let your graciousness, your big heartedness be known to everyone. And why? This is critically important for us the rest of the verse. Why is it important that our reasonableness be known to everyone? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The judge and the just and the righteous, perfect, holy God of the universe is at hand. James 2 warns us, judgment comes without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
Our reasonableness has evangelistic implications. I just wonder right now, in the midst of all the tensions of 2020, does the world, from the outside looking in, see the church and see people who are reasonable? In many ways, they see people who are afraid, who have become paranoid, who are divisive and hateful, who look nothing like Jesus. And we need the reminder, the Lord is at hand. Our lack of reasonability ultimately will invite the judgment of the Lord. The invincible church is called to walk in reasonable, gracious humility as one body that constantly seeks the best for others. Verses 6 and 7, Paul goes on to say, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So fifth trait is rest. We find comfort in his promise. Rest. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. We know that worry doesn't change anything, but man, it does not stop us from trying. We convince ourselves, maybe if I worry enough today, things will look different by the time I go to bed tonight. And then we go to bed plagued by the same worries that we woke up with that morning. Do not be anxious about anything. Listen, I want to pause here for just a second because uh, oftentimes this passage of Scripture, you've seen unfortunately in the history of the church, be used uh, in a very dismissive way of those who are walking through severe uh, depression, anxiety, uh, particularly those who suffer from clinical depression and anxiety. Uh, Sometimes they've just been dismissed. Their concerns have been dismissed. They're just, hey, you just need to stop worrying. You need to start praying. And and that's not very helpful for somebody who might actually have like a genetic disposition or a, a physiological struggle. It's like, hey, I would love to start worrying, but I literally have got things going on in my brain that prevent that from happening. And so we need to be very, very careful with how we use these truths. And I'm, I'm grateful that over the last few years that that conversation has become much more safe within the church. And, and it should be safe within the church because what we find in these verses when Paul tells them, be anxious for nothing, it reveals to us there were people who were anxious. There were people who were struggling with a lot of the same things that we're struggling with today. And so we don't need to be so dismissive of of those who might have major serious things that they're walking through together. But even for the person who is walking through the worst anxiety, the worst depression, Paul offers here an incredible promise. The end of verse 5 is also the beginning of verse 6. Before he tells us not to worry, he reminds us the Lord is at hand. So worry about nothing. The Lord is at hand. In light of this, here's Paul's direction, in everything by prayer. He says, so in your communion with the Lord, with supplication, in crying out, in pleading to the Lord, with thanksgiving, with gratitude for all that the Lord has done for you in Christ Jesus, let your requests be made known to God. So for some who hear the words, the Lord is at hand, it's a warning of his judgment. For those who are in Christ, hearing the words, the Lord is at hand, is a promise of our rescue. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. Peter writes it like this in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's your father, and he cares for you. God has ordained that we should ask, and as a father who loves his children, he delights in our asking. Let your requests be made known to God. And here's the the promise that we find in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I just want to ask you this morning, are you overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world? Has this, this year, this month, this week, has it broken you? Are you overwhelmed by what's happening? Is your mind wrecked with anxiety over your job or over your home or over your marriage or over your children? I am not here today with an admonition to simply tell you you need to stop worrying. I want to come to you today with a promise, and the promise is this. The Lord is at hand. 
The Lord is at hand. If you are in Christ, he has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He has not left you to your suffering. The one who sweat drops of blood in the garden holds every one of your tears in his bottle. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of your tossings and your turnings. He's with you, he's for you, and he's coming for you. The Lord is at hand. And this battle starts in our minds. If we're going to know the victory of true rest and true peace, our hearts and minds have to be guarded by the peace of God that can only be found in Jesus Christ. So in verse 8, Paul turns our attention to the mind. Verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So sixth trait is renewal. Renewal, meditate upon that which pleases the Lord. This is a trait of invincible churches that our minds are being renewed, as Paul says. He writes this in Romans 12, that transformation comes through the renewal of our minds. He'd exhorted the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 to have the mind of Christ. And then by giving them this list of things to meditate on, uh, we could safely assume we also have a list of things not to meditate on. If these are the things we need to focus our hearts and minds on, then, then we could safely take the opposite of these things and say, don't fill your mind with this. And so Paul says here right at the beginning, he says, to think upon whatever is true, to meditate upon that which is true. And so the call to think upon that which is true is also a call to not think upon, not meditate upon that which is false. And I want to pay particular attention to this uh, trait. I don't have time to do this with all of these this morning. But listen, if you are among the professing followers of Jesus who is struggling to believe that God's word is true, do not fill your mind all week long with podcasts of those who doubt that God's word is true. Go to those who have found confidence in the word of God. This is the biggest error of the progressive Christian movement of the 21st century is that it will never lead you to objectivity. It will fill your minds and fuel your doubts only with more questions and more doubts. It will never lead you to Jesus. Paul does not say fill your mind with that which is subjective. Fill your mind with truth. There are so many resources that you could draw from today. Go to resources from Nine Marks, from Desiring God, from the Gospel Coalition, from Ligonier. He reads truth. She reads truth. There is a, a litany of resources available to you today for those who have wrestled through those doubts, worked through those doubts, and they have found confidence in the Word of God. The progressive Christian movement of today, it wants to make God's Word seem vague. It wants to make it sound inconsistent. It wants to make it so, sound unclear. Paul would not tell us to meditate upon that which is true if we did not have words that were true. Find confidence in this word and fill your mind with that which is true. He says, whatever is honorable, so don't meditate upon that which is dishonorable. Whatever is pure, so, so do not fill your mind on your computer screen with things that are impure. Whatever is lovely, so not that which drives you to hate. Like if you find yourself scrolling through social media every single day and then walking away angry every 15 minutes and infuriated, put that bad boy away for a couple hours. Go for a walk. Take a deep breath. Just maybe shut it down for a week or so. Just hit the reset button and start over. Don't fill your mind with things that leave you there. Whatever's commendable, so not that which is reprehensible. Whatever's worthy of praise, so not that which causes you to bring others to accusation. Don't invite the worry and the anxiety and the restlessness into your life. Whatever fuels you, whatever drives you, whatever inspires you to empty your life in service for others, in worship of a holy God, think on those things. What drives and fuels your affections for Jesus? Fill your life, fill your mind with those things. 
think about these things. That's what Paul says. So uh, verse 9, he goes on to say, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So seventh trait and final trait that we see this morning is repetition. The Invincible Church is a church of repetition. Put your faith into practice. Practice these things. Practice these things, Paul says. You know, it's hard to believe, uh, but we are uh, finally in the, finally, finally in, in the home stretch of 2020. You know, the finally of 2020 has felt a lot like Paul's finally in the book of Philippians, like it happened in chapter three, and then it's happened again here in chapter four. It's like, when's this thing going to be over? That's just sort of how this year has felt. Like, when is the end actually going to come? And so uh, we've seen this this morning, that even in the church today, that there is just continues to be this drift away from truth, a, dr- uh, a drift away from objectivity, drift away from confidence in the word of God. And so I just want to ask us this morning as we begin to close, how will we practice these things in the year ahead? How will you put these things into practice? How will we be a church of repetition that's standing in the Lord, standing firm in the Lord, so that everything else we've seen this morning, the other six things that we've looked at, this happens when we stand firm in the Lord and when we practice what he's revealed to us. So we have to know his word to know what we should be practicing and what we should be putting into action. So I want to do this just uh, in some ways as uh, an attempt to begin wrapping up this year for us and, and starting to get your mind to start thinking towards the year to come and how we're going to do this together as a church, how you might do this individually as a follower of Jesus. I want to highlight uh, four specific ways we want to emphasize the authority of God's word in the year ahead. Four specific ways uh, that we want to be a church that is standing firm in the Lord uh, by standing firm in his word. So uh, first, very simply, is that once again, as a church family, we're going to commit to reading through the Bible in the year ahead. Uh, this email went out for the first time this past weekend. I think we've already had about 30 people sign up to uh, read uh, God's word. Next year, it's a five-day-a-week plan. This year was a seven-day-a-week plan. This year, uh, there's some grace days built into that. And so it's a 260-day reading plan. It doesn't cover the entire Bible, but it covers uh, really the high points and the main points and main emphasis from each book of the Bible. Uh, the subtitle of this is a a Bible reading plan for busy believers. And so if that sounds like you, that's something we believe that's very attainable for all of us. But uh, for those who may want to read through the whole Bible again, we're going to share another plan in just a couple of weeks. And so whatever you do, do something. It doesn't have to be one of those plans. We hope that we can do this together in, as a community of believers. But commit to reading through God's Word. Commit to that daily practice in the year ahead. Congregationally, as a church, uh, Lord willing, for the first few months of 20, uh, 20, uh, 2021, um, we're going to be studying the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm really excited about this because what we find in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, first and foremost, it's a, it's a couple of different pictures, but when we first get onto the scene in Ezra, the picture that we see is the devastation that occurs when God's people forget his word. That's what we come upon when we open up the book of Ezra. We see this picture of devastation and of exile. We're going to talk about how it is that they got there. And then what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is a recovery of God's word. It's a rebuilding of the city. So the second picture is the awakening that comes when God's word is found and restored to its proper place among his people. And so we're going to commit ourselves for the first few months of next year to seeing those two pictures unfold. Uh, Third, very simply as a church, we're going to be providing resources to help you grow in your confidence in Scripture. So uh, if you join us for worship, second Sunday in January, everybody who comes that day, we're going to give you a free copy of R.C. Sproul's book, Can I Trust the Bible? So if you're really struggling with concepts like inspiration and inerrancy and uh, the, the, the truthfulness of God's Word, its relevance for our life today, how did we get our Bible? How can we know that it's true? How can we know that it's accurate? It's a very short, accessible resource are going to make that totally free for those who come that day, along with many other resources next year. And last, this is going to seem really insignificant. I'm going to be honest, this might be the most controversial thing I say all day for, for some. And so, um, but it's, we, we believe this is important. 
On Sunday mornings, when it comes to our primary preaching text, so basically outside of our public scripture readings and a couple of other supplemental texts, on Sunday mornings, we're going to stop putting scripture on the screen. And this seems like a simple thing, and it seems like an insignificant thing, but there has been this movement. You, you can track, you can track over the last few decades this lack of emphasis on the Word of God, this lack of emphasis in personal devotion, this lack of understanding some of the basics of Scripture, along with what was intended to be a very good practice of making the Bible more accessible, it's caused many followers of Jesus to become less grounded in the Word. I, I, I believe this for uh, 12 years with student ministry before we, we launched. This is usually how we did with students. I wanted them holding, not a screen, not looking at a screen for a one hour a week. I wanted them to hold this physical book and to open it up and learn to search its pages. But I think it's an indictment against the modern church culture when most of us have no problem finding our lost iPhones from a different device, but we would struggle to find the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Church, we have to know this word because this world knows how to use this word against us. It's an indictment against the church when there are college professors who can use this word to undo, systematically undo the faith of our teenagers when we send them off to school. They have got to be grounded in this word. We as a church have to be grounded in this word. So my prayer above all else is that we would fully know Christ, and if we're going to fully know Christ, we have to know this word. There's a key to being an invincible church. Key to being here. Verse 9, he says, what you've learned and what you've received and heard, he said, practice these things. So I want us to learn God's word. I want us to be eager to receive God's word. I want us to hear God's word, to see God's word and practice. And this is why. Practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And that's what makes us invincible. Not in what we're doing, but in the fact that he is with us. Paul asked this question in Romans 8.31, rhetorical question. If our God is for us, then who can be against us? And the answer technically is everyone, but who cares? Because we're not going to fail. Technically everyone can be, but who cares? We can be an invincible church because we have an invincible Christ. And so my question to us is, will we stand in him? Will we agree in him? Will we rejoice in him today? Commit ourselves to his word in the year ahead. So, Father, as we, we close this morning, Lord, we thank you for this gift of your word. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh. By the word that you had spoken in eternity past, he became flesh and dwelt among us, Lord. And then, miracle of all miracles, you gave us a book so that we could know him in a real and intimate way through the word that you have spoken through your prophets and through apostles. Lord, timeless truth that has not changed with the shifting nature of our world, Lord, would we anchor ourselves to this word. For those of us who, who struggle with doubts, who have questions, Lord, I pray that the church would be a safe place for those questions and for those doubts, and that we in love would point to objective truth. So, Fathers, we prepare to come to the table this morning to receive communion, to celebrate what you have instituted. Lord, help us to reflect once again on the miracle of the cross. The miracle of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. The salvation that he's purchased for us. The cost that you paid so that we could be saved.